Thank you, Curtis, for the, uh, the holy fist bump. Well, good morning, brothers and sisters. It is good to be gathered with you on the Lord's Day. It has uh, been a sweet time of worship uh, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ this morning. Well, if you are new with us, welcome. We're glad you're here this morning. We are uh, taking a, a brief pause in our series through the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, we just got to the end of the Sermon on the Mount, and before jumping into chapter 8, we're taking a couple weeks just to do a short topical series on the three enemies of the Christian life, the world, the flesh, and the devil. The world, the flesh, and the devil. So we're going to be bouncing around all kinds of passages of Scripture today, and uh, in about two weeks we'll be back in Matthew verse by verse, chugging along at a nice slow pace. Uh, born in 1914, Eddie Chapman, a name that none of you probably know, was a low-level criminal in Britain. He rose in prominence in the criminal underground until he was arrested in 1939 and imprisoned in the Channel Islands. Now, the Germans eventually would occupy these islands between England and France. And when he was released in 1941, Eddie Chapman went to the Germans and said, Hey, I will spy for you. My country locked me up in jail. I will spy for you. And the Germans were desperate for intelligence at this point in the war, and they accepted his offer. So they trained him in France and they parachuted him into England, where he was supposed to infiltrate the criminal underground again and gain intelligence for the Germans. But as soon as Chapman's feet hit British soil, he immediately ran to the authorities, turned himself in, told them what had happened, and said, hey, I'll spy for you against the Germans. And he became Agent Zigzag, one of the most important double agents of World War II, uh, giving Germany false information that actually saved many lives. Eddie Chapman was the enemy within. He was the hostile force inside Germany's ranks that they were not even aware of. They gave this man a yacht, all kinds of medals. He was a celebrity in Germany. They didn't know he was undermining them. The enemy within. As we continue through our mini-series on the enemies of the Christian life, we come to our own enemy within, the flesh, the flesh. Of all the enemies in the Christian life, the world, the flesh, and the devil, the flesh is probably the least understood and the most neglected, right? We're very quick to say, the devil made me do it, right? Or, or the world's just been influencing me too much. I couldn't, couldn't resist. But we're far less eager to say, well, yeah, I sinned because of my own sinful nature. But if we never come to battle with the enemy within, with the flesh, not only will we have no victory over sin that we deal with daily, um, we will also have no evidence of our salvation. So our battle with the flesh is a very important one. Let's pray as we come to God's word. Our Lord and our God, you are so good to give us your word. We thank you, Lord, that you have not hidden yourself, that you have not remained silent, but Lord, that you have spoken through the prophets, through the writers of Scripture, through the apostles, through your Lord, or through your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and that, Lord, you have given us your word as a sure, trustworthy revelation of yourself to us. But Lord, we thank you that your word doesn't just tell us about you, it tells us about us. That as we come to the pages of Scripture, Lord, we see who man is, who we are from your perspective. And Lord, we pray that you would help us this morning. As we address this topic of the flesh, Lord, it is a challenging one in some ways, a convicting one in some ways. Father, help us to take what your word says seriously, and not just to hear it, but Lord, to do it. We cannot do this apart from the help of your spirit, so we pray, O Lord, send your spirit, open our eyes, our ears, our hearts, that we might receive your word with meekness and humility, and that we would be changed by it. We pray this in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ, amen. Well, before we talk about the flesh, we have to be able to define what is the flesh? What is the flesh? This is actually a key question because this is where most of the confusion that Christians have lies. If we don't know what the flesh is, we're going to start uh, you know, engaging in battle in the, with the wrong thing, with the wrong enemy. Now, just like we saw last week with the world, when we hear this term, the flesh, biblically, there's a number of different definitions that this word refers to. It can refer to our it can refer to all created things that God has made, right? The, the decaying creation, we could say. It can refer to human weakness. It can refer to human effort. 
But none of these capture the definition of the flesh that we're looking at this morning, the negative sense, the hostile enemy to God and our walk with Christ. Now turn with me to Galatians chapter 5 as we see this particular use of this term in Scripture. Galatians 5, 16 through 17. 16 through 17. the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. And when we read this passage about this battle between the Spirit and the flesh, what is Paul referring to when he says the flesh? Well, he's not talking about the physical body. He's not talking about natural human weakness or frailty here. Right? Our bodies are not hostile to God. Our, our weakness as human beings, as created beings, well, that's not inherently hostile to God. No, when Paul talks about the flesh here, he's referring to something different. He's referring to our fallen, corrupt, sinful human nature. That's the, the meaning of the flesh that we're looking at in this sermon and in these texts this morning. Our fallen, corrupt, sinful human nature. Now, our human nature affects a lot of different areas of life, doesn't it? It affects our thoughts, it affects the things we desire and the amount to which we desire them. It affects our emotions, it affects our motivations. It can affect our physical appetites, right? All those things can be affected and are affected by indwelling sin. Now, it is true that the body can be a vehicle for the desires and the works of the flesh, but the body itself is not sinful flesh. The body is not evil. That's something that we need to get um, clear right off the bat, right? When we're talking about the flesh as an enemy of God, we're not talking about our physical body. That's something God created, and God created it good. Does it have weaknesses? Does it get ill? To be sure. But the body itself is not sinful flesh. The flesh is that sinfulness that indwells us as fallen human beings in a fallen world. Now, in our society today, um, our, our world really doesn't have a category for something like the flesh, like sinful human nature. It doesn't really know how to understand things in that lens, right? Everything you do, the struggles that you have, the dysfunctions in your life, those are either the result of your environment, maybe your psychology, your biology, right? For example, if you're an angry person, well, that could just be because you never learned good coping strategies, right? Uh, if you have a disobedient child, it could just be because that, that child has a mental illness. If you struggle with um, overeating or substance abuse, well, that could just be because you have a biological disease of addiction. Right? Those are the answers that our world provides for the struggles of human beings. And we don't want to downplay that human problems can be complicated and there's another, uh, a number of factors involved, but as Christians, we need to go with what God's Word says. And God's Word is very clear that the root of human problems is sin. It's the sinful flesh, right? It's our sinful human nature. Turn to Matthew chapter 15 briefly with me. Matthew 15. Uh, and Jesus really lays this out for us in no uncertain terms. Matthew 15. Let's see verses tw uh, 19 through 20. Jesus' disciples have, have come to him. Uh, after the Pharisees have complained about uh, their lack of washing of hands or, or even their lack of keeping the food laws of Israel, or the traditions that man had invented. And Jesus points them to the reality that it is not the body that is defiling, but it is rather what is in man. Look what he says in verse 19. He says, Out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual morality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person, but to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. Again, Jesus makes very clear here, it is not the body that is the problem, it is the heart. It is the heart, it is the sinful nature of man that is the root of these things. We don't sin because Satan forces us to, or because our environment shapes us that way. Ultimately, we sin because, as, as John Calvin says, we have a spring of evil in us that is perpetually sending forth desires that allure and stimulate us to sin. The spring of evil, that sinful nature, is the flesh, and it is inside each one of us here today. 
So now that we've defined the flesh as the, the corrupt, sinful, fallen human nature that all of us have, which is opposed to God, what is our relationship to the flesh as Christians? And it's helpful to consider what our past relationship to the flesh is and our present relationship. And believe it or not, this question of, of our relationship to the flesh is actually a controversial one. Um, and we'll, we'll see why in a moment. One thing all Christians are agreed on, though, is that our relationship to the flesh before becoming a Christian is quite clear. Now, the Bible says, in black and white terms, that each person is born with a sinful nature. We enter the world this way. We are born in the flesh. I turn over just a couple books to Ephesians chapter 2, and we see what the Apostle Paul writes about our natural state from birth. This is how we exist in this world. We read this passage last week in regards to the world, the world system, but it's relevant for the flesh as well. Verses 1 through 3 is where we'll be looking in Ephesians chapter 2. The Apostle Paul describes our, our past existence, we could say, before Christ this way. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now working the sons of disobedience. And look what he says here in verse 3. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Now notice what Paul says there, that, that our natural state is just to go along with the passions of our flesh, to do whatever our bodies desire, to do whatever our mind thinks is right to do. Our, our relationship to the flesh before Christ was one of slavery, as Titus 3.3 says, that we were slaves to various passions and pleasures. We just happily went along with whatever our flesh desired. There was one driving force in our life, the flesh. Right? That's how we existed. One driving force that affected our minds, our bodies, our hearts, the flesh. And the flesh used our physical and our sinful nature for sinful and self-gratifying purposes. And we were quite satisfied to go along. Now, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, again, we're very glad you're here. Um, I want to be honest with you. Right? If you're not a Christian, this is where you are today. You are following along the passions of your flesh, doing whatever seems right and good to you. Right? That is where you are at today. It's important to understand that and to be honest with you on that. But when a person becomes a Christian, what happens then? What happens then? What happens to that flesh, to the sinful nature? What is our current relationship as Christians to the flesh? Well, the Bible does speak to this too. Now, some Christians fall into to a, a way of thinking um, that when you become a Christian, your flesh just disappears, right? That you don't have a sinful nature anymore, uh, that, that that part of you is put to death once and for all, right? It is, it's just gone. It's absent from you. Uh, your flesh no longer bothers you. There's no indwelling sin anymore. But the Bible paints a very different picture than this. Uh, the Apostle Peter tells us in 1 Peter 2.11 to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul, right? Abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. And this verse captures so succinctly what our relationship to the flesh is now. It's one of warfare. Our flesh is still here with us. And make no mistake, when, when Peter uses this, this term, wage war, he's using it in the Greek in the present tense, which is describing a continuous, ongoing action. It's continuous and ongoing. It doesn't stop. It hasn't stopped since we've become Christians. The flesh and its passions, Peter says, are always waging war against your soul. That could not be the case if you did not have a sinful nature anymore. Peter wouldn't be able to write this verse. Paul writes something similar in Galatians 5.17. We just read it. The desires of the flesh are against the spirit. The desires of the spirit are against the flesh. They're opposed to each other, he says. Again, Paul couldn't write this to Christians if we did not have this battle to fight still. Now, when a person becomes a Christian, when, you, when you're born again, right, we're regenerated. We are given a new heart that is inclined towards God. We are given a new nature, a new mind that understands and loves God's truth. And most importantly, when a person becomes a Christian, they are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Right? That is a beautiful and wonderful thing. We, we become filled with God's Spirit, equipped with His power. 
The flesh, of course, is opposed to God's spirit and opposed to God's righteous law. And this opposition is constant. But think about, again, what this means for you and me. The flesh doesn't disappear. It doesn't disappear. The flesh indwelling sin, the corruption of our human nature, still remains with us. When we become a Christian, we don't lose the flesh. We gain the spirit. Right? We gain the spirit. We gain a new nature. But that flesh is still there. Before, we were enslaved to our flesh. We would just go along with it, doing whatever it wanted. There was one driving force. But when a person becomes a Christian and receives the Holy Spirit, is born again, we become set free from the flesh's domination. We're no longer slaves to it anymore. Do we still have to deal with it? Yes, we do. But we are given the Holy Spirit, right? A great power and ability to resist the flesh and to fight against the flesh. We're no longer enslaved to it anymore. And that's important to understand. But we must understand this as well, that the battle against the flesh begins when we become Christians. And it does not end until we are glorified at the return of Christ or, you know, until our soul departs this body to be with him. That's when the battle ends. It doesn't end when you become a Christian. That's really when the battle begins. And that's why we have to understand that even as Christians, we have a great enemy within ourselves. We can't neglect that area of the battlefield. And, and, and you know, to be honest, it's a great concern to me. Uh, when, when Christians think that the source of all their struggles is outside of them, right? I've had many, many conversations with dear and sincere believers who attribute every difficulty, every struggle to Satan, right? Satan influenced me to behave this way or to do that, right? Or these things happened and Satan's just ruining my day, right? Well, we got to be honest. Satan is not the one we carry around with us 24-7, right? Our flesh is. And the less aware we are about the reality of indwelling sin, the greater the hold it has on us. So how does the flesh oppose us? How does the flesh war against the spirit? How does it wage war against our souls? What are its strategies? Well, when we look at scripture, there's really one main strategy uh, that the Bible describes the flesh using. It can take a number of different forms, but there's really one main strategy. Turn with me to James chapter 1, and we'll see this laid out for us. James chapter 1, We'll look at verses 14 and 15 together. In one word, the strategy of the flesh is temptation. It's temptation. Look at what the, uh, the brother of Jesus, James himself, writes for us. We'll back up to verse 13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. In other words, God in no way, shape, or form tries to lead people into sin. But, verse 14, each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. His own desire coming from himself. Then, desire when it is conceived gives birth to sin, and sin when it is fully grown brings forth death. Now, it's true, Satan does tempt us from without. Jim will be covering that next week. But what we need to realize is what James says here. Each one of us is tempted, first and foremost, by the sinful desires of our flesh, which Satan and the world appeal to and take advantage of. But they don't put those desires there. They're already there in our sinful nature. And that desire, that temptation leads to sin, which leads to death. So again, the main strategy of the flesh is temptation. Temptation, having these desires that come from a sinful nature and trying to lead us like a magnet towards them. And these desires may differ from person to person, right? One person may be tempted in a very different way from another. One person may be tempted to anger, another to lust. One person may be tempted to neglect public worship and another to steal from their employer, right? Whatever it might be. The desires themselves, though, come from inside. They come from indwelling sin, from the flesh. 
Right? You know what it's like to be tempted, even if you're not a Christian, right? You know what it's like to be tempted. You're just going along doing your thing and a thought runs through your head, right? Mm, this, this thing, right? Could be gossip, pornography, laziness, venting, whatever. If I do this, oh, that'll make you feel really good. You've been having a hard day. Come on, you deserve it. You deserve some relief. Well, that temptation, that desire, ultimately comes from our fleshly nature, our, our sinful nature and our weaknesses. And all of us would say on paper, yeah, we, we know those things are wrong. Right? We know what God's Word says about this topic or that topic. We know that's a sin. But as John Owen says, once that desire and temptation rise up, sometimes all contrary reasonings are overcome and silenced. We stop thinking clearly, right? And we just go for that thing we think is going to make our flesh feel good. It gratifies the flesh. Now, not all temptation from the flesh is a clearly defined thought process. Sometimes it's just wordless desire. Just wordless desire. At other times, the flesh is so deceitful that it, it, it can even try to trick us into thinking we should do something good and right or abstain from something wrong for a very righteous reason when, when really our motivations for doing that thing or not doing this thing are impure. Right? I'm, I'm not going to do this so that other people think highly of me. right? Or I'm going to pursue this position or, or, or do this thing with my family so that others think well of me. That's the flesh at work. Sometimes the flesh desires glory for itself in human effort and tempts us into thinking we need to earn God's love or, or even at times earn our salvation by our works. And the flesh can lead us down a path of self-righteousness very quickly, deceiving us to trust in human effort rather than God's grace so that we can boast in ourselves. Our sinful nature can be very, very slippery and deceitful. Jeremiah 17, 9 says very clearly, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can know it? That is our flesh. That's our flesh. And if, if you are a Christian, you are faced with a choice when that temptation arises. You're faced with a choice. Do we gratify the desires of the flesh or do we honor the Lord in obedience? That's the choice, right? That's the fork in the road. That's the fork in the road. And the longer that we delay biblical intervention with that temptation, the stronger its power becomes. The stronger the flesh's grip becomes on us in that moment. Right? You, you're tempted to something. You have that thought fly through your mind. You kind of start chewing on it a little bit. You're like, ah, I don't get to do that. You know? But you don't really deal with it. And it just stays there and gets stronger and stronger and stronger. And eventually there you are doing that, that very thing, right? We must be careful not to underestimate the enemy within, not to underestimate uh, the, the attacks of the flesh. It's a very real thing. We're not under uh, demonic attack 24-7. We're not always uh, receiving messages from the world about what is good and what is not good. But we are always, the Bible is very clear, being assailed by the flesh. Always. Always. Uh, John Owen, again, is helpful here. He says, Traitors occupy our own hearts, ready to side with every temptation and to surrender to them all. How about that? That is true for believers. That is true for believers. The more we give into the flesh, the stronger its influence becomes. Paul writes, Galatians 5, the one who sows, uh, excuse me, Galatians 6, the one who sows to his own flesh will reap from the flesh corruption. Right? The more we give into the flesh, the more we feed the flesh, the more we make provision for the flesh, Romans 13 the less we resist it, the stronger its hold on us will become, the more we will live in a disobedient and dishonoring way. And if you never resist the flesh, it doesn't matter how often you come to church, it doesn't matter how often you read your Bible, if you never resist the flesh and repent and turn to Christ, you will reap corruption and you have no assurance that you are a Christian. If you never resist temptation, then it would seem you are enslaved to it. That's the reality of it. Fortunately, though, the flesh is an enemy that can be defeated. It is not a hopeless struggle. And if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, the Bible has an answer for you, how you can overcome the flesh as well. And we need to start with our ultimate champion, the one who has overcome the flesh for us so that we might have victory against the flesh's temptation. We need to ask, how has Christ overcome the flesh? How has Christ overcome the flesh? As we saw last week, we need to understand how Christ has overcome 
the flesh. And if we try to face this enemy without understanding how Christ is the ultimate source of victory, then we will experience nothing but failure. That's the reality of it. And one of the ways Christ has overcome the flesh is he has lived a perfect human life. He's lived a perfect human life. Now, Jesus is genuinely, fully God. He always has been. He takes upon himself a human flesh, a human nature, a human mind and uh, body and soul. He is fully God and fully man. Fully God and fully man. He was just as human as you and I, though. But there's one major difference we need to remember. Jesus never sinned. We read that this morning in Hebrews 4. He is without sin. He never once disobeyed the will of the Father. He never once disobeyed the law of God. He only and always did what was pleasing to the Lord, to his Father, in his mind, in his heart, in his soul, in his strength. Jesus obeyed perfectly. And that is because Jesus did not have a fallen human nature like you or I. And we make a mistake sometimes in thinking that Jesus is actually less human than us because he didn't have this sinful human nature. But really, it's the opposite. Jesus is, we could say, more human than us because he has a perfect human nature. He's without sin, unlike you or I. He, he didn't have this corrupt part of him warring all the time, right, tempting him all the time from within. And that's good news because it means Jesus was able to live a life that was completely and fully pleasing to God in every way, which you and I cannot do. You and I have not done. He is able to actually be a savior of sinners because he himself is not a sinner. And one of the greatest things that, that this reality, that remembering this, that Jesus lived a perfect human life, one of the greatest things this does for us is remind us that we have a mediator who knows what it's like to be genuinely human but without sin. What does that mean we can do? We can look to Christ and have assurance that God accepts us not because of what we've done, not because of how hard we've worked, not because of our success in fighting the flesh, but because of what Christ has done for us. Our fight against the flesh starts with our justification. Uh, Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We need to start there with that reality, right? And this is going to be foundational for us when we get to our own efforts against the flesh. But Christ has overcome the flesh by living a perfect life. And what this does is rob the flesh, our flesh, of its ability to seek its own glory in religious pursuits, right? We can't climb the ladder to God. It's not going to happen. And all the glory must now go to Christ. And through Christ, God's provided abundant mercy and salvation. And as Paul says, this removes the confidence in the flesh that we could have. So instead, Christ has overcome the flesh and its works-based boastfulness by his death and resurrection in our place. The second thing Christ has done to overcome sinful flesh is he has crucified our flesh with him. Turn over to Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6. Christ has crucified our flesh with him. Paul writes this, starting in verse 5. For if we have been united with him, meaning Christ, in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self, that's a synonym for the flesh, was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Now notice what Paul says here. God the Father has united us with Christ spiritually by faith. And as a result of that, what do we read in verse 6? We read that our old self was crucified with him. Our old self was crucified with Christ as he was crucified. Now this is semi-figurative, semi semi-metaphorical in a way, right? Um, but really what Paul is getting at is that when Christ died on the cross... The sinful nature of his people was crucified there. Its power was removed in terms of its dominance, right? The life uh, that, it, that it occupied in the believer. Now, we do still struggle with it, of course, but our flesh no longer has the upper hand. Christ has crucified it with him. It has been dealt a mortal blow. Yes, we do still carry it around with us, but as Paul says in verse 6, the body of sin, our sinful flesh, will be brought to nothing. We are enslaved to it no 
longer. By crucifying the sinful flesh of his people, Christ has freed us from its power by taking it to the cross. Just as our sin cannot condemn us any longer, our flesh cannot dominate us any longer. Now, brothers and sisters, it's true. There are days when the flesh seems like it's working overtime. There's those days where you may, you may be attacked by the world, the flesh, and the devil all at once, and you feel overwhelmed. But what Paul writes here is the reality of the situation in this, in the believer. These enemies, including the flesh, they are losing, and they will ultimately be defeated. Christ has guaranteed that for his people. The flesh is not going to get down off that cross and suddenly become our master again. I love what Paul says in Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Christ has crucified its flesh and taken away its mastery of us. Number three, Christ has given us his spirit. Christ has overcome the flesh by giving us his spirit. Right? Christ has given us the greatest power to be with us always. The Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. When a person becomes a Christian, when they're born again, right, the very Spirit of God takes up residence in them. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 3.16 that we are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in us. Consider the reality of that. You have the picture of the temple in the Old Testament where God dwelt, but now the dwelling place of God is not in a building made with hands. It is a people, His people. And this gets even better, right? The, The Holy Spirit is not using you as an Airbnb to take a vacation. Right? The Holy Spirit is actually renovating you. He is doing a remodel. He is strengthening your soul, your new nature that you've received through regeneration. And we call this process progressive sanctification. Right? Progressive sanctification, how we are changed to be more like Christ. And God's Spirit living in us actually empowers us to do two major things in our fight against the flesh. Putting the flesh to death and strengthening the inner man. The Spirit does both of those things. The Spirit uh, empowers us to resist and deny the flesh. We read in Romans 8.13, If you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit are sons of God. We read in Galatians how the Spirit wars and opposes against the flesh. We join in the battle. But we can only put to death the deeds of the flesh because the Spirit empowers us to. Not only that, the Spirit also works in us to strengthen the inner man our new nature. Paul prays for the Ephesians Christians in in Ephesians 4.22 that according to the riches of God's glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. It is the spirit who is at work strengthening the believer in their soul, their new nature, their inner being. The spirit works in us to help us day by day Make our new nature grow stronger and stronger, renewed and enlivened. We cannot fight against the flesh without this either. And finally, number four, Christ overcomes the flesh by making us like him. By making us like him. Ultimately, you and I are not going to have victory over the flesh until Christ returns, or unless we die before then. But when Christ returns, we have a great promise about what we call glorification not just of our bodies, but of our human nature as a whole. Uh, Turn to 1 Corinthians 15, right after the book of Romans. 1 Corinthians 15, looking at verse 53. We see what we have to look forward to. 1 Corinthians 53 through 57. Paul's writing about the resurrection and the return of Christ Here's what he says. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul writes elsewhere that when Christ appears, we will be made like him. Not just in our our obedience to God, but in our whole nature. We will be made like Christ, glorified, without weakness, without corruption, without 
sin. Friend, you will not reach perfection in this life. But when Christ returns, our redemption will be complete. Our body and our soul, our human nature once more, right? Reunited, freed from the corruption of sin, purified and glorified. Becoming like the human nature of our sinless Savior. As Paul says, God gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Not through anything else, but through Him. And this victory is complete and finalized when Christ returns. So, just like last week, we need to ask the question, what do we do in the meantime while we wait for our Savior to come back? Right? What do we do in the meantime? This isn't peacetime. This is wartime. What do we do? We still have to deal with the flesh, so how do we resist it? How do we fight that enemy that wages war against our soul? And I think it's helpful to talk about what fighting the flesh is not, what it's not. Um, there's been a lot of different ways that people have taken to fight the sinful nature that man has, to fight the flesh throughout history, and a great number of them have been um, dismal failures, we could say. One is the act of self-flagellation, right, from the, uh, the Middle Ages, common in the Roman Catholic Church, where you literally are beating your body, trying to uh, subdue the flesh that way. This still happens uh, today in some countries, actually. Physically hurting your body in order to weaken and kill the flesh. Here's another example. Right, let's say you struggle with, with gluttony, perhaps, right, with overeating. Well, some people would say a diet, that's how you mortify the flesh. That's how you subdue the flesh. You go on a diet. Alcoholics Anonymous has the concept of a dry drunk who may stop the behavior of drunkenness, right, but who never actually deals with the despair, the anger, etc., etc., and just ends up turning to something else to cope that's not alcohol. Now, if you examine all these different solutions to resisting our sinful nature, the flesh, it becomes pretty apparent they're only dealing with the external. They're only dealing with the physical body, the external stuff. But none of that actually deals with what's going on in here. None of that actually deals with our nature. The answer to fighting the flesh is not found in any of these things. Instead, Scripture gives us several commands to help us put the flesh to death to subdue it, to resist it, to overcome it. And the first is hands down the most important. The first thing Scripture commands us to do is to walk by the Spirit. Walk by the Spirit. Turn to Galatians 5.16 again. We were there just a little while ago. We're going to go back there. Galatians 5.16. Paul says, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. That's pretty, pretty black and white, it would seem, right? Walk by the Spirit, you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. This is where we have to start, walking by the Spirit. What does this look like? What does this mean? Well, it really gets down to this. It means we cannot ultimately trust in our own self-efforts to change us. We are the problem. We are not going to be the solution to ourselves, right? You can't fix yourself. It's not going to happen. It doesn't work that way. We are the problem. Sometimes Christians, right, we do spiritual things. We, we pray, we read our Bible because we think the act of doing this is what changes us, right? We think the actual act of doing it is what changes us. The more I do this, the more I will change. But that's actually uh, wrong. That will not help us overcome the flesh. We should do these things. We should pray without ceasing. We should read our Bible. Absolutely. But what we need to realize, it is not us doing these acts that changes us, it is God using these things to change us. God is the agent of change, right? So in other words, walking by the Spirit, practically speaking, means asking God for help constantly, seeking His aid, His help, His mercy, His grace in overcoming the flesh. In resisting temptation, it means we don't look to ourselves for strength. I've got the willpower. I'm going to white-knuckle it through this, you know. But saying, Lord, you must help me. You must help me or I will fall. This is why Jesus tells us in the Lord's Prayer, Lord, keep us from temptation. Lead us not into temptation. We're asking the Lord to keep us far away from it, to keep us from giving into it. Jesus tells us to pray this way. Well, we must. That is part of walking by the Spirit. So our battle against the flesh must be dependent on the Spirit for help. 
We have to start there and end there rather than our own self-efforts. doesn't mean we are passive in this, but it does mean that we can do nothing apart from him. That brings us to the second thing Scripture calls us to do. What is our role in this? Well, we walk by the Spirit, absolutely. We have to start there. But Scripture also calls us to take a pretty significant role in this battle. Look at Romans 8.13. See the Apostle Paul's instruction to us. Romans 8.13. Paul writes to the Romans, If you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Again, we see the Spirit is the one who is the driving force, the empowering one within us. But we are called to put to death the deeds of the flesh, right? I use this word mortify, mortification, right? Um, It's just the old Puritan word for put to death. That's what it means, put to death. Romans 8.13, the word again here is in the present tense, meaning it's an activity we are to continually be engaging in, something we're always to be about. As John Owen helpfully said, he's got a whole book, right, on the mortification of sin in believer. It is worth reading. It is very relevant to this topic. But he says, be killing sin or it will be killing you. That's pretty short and sweet. We are called to kill sin, to mortify the flesh. That doesn't mean we kill it once and never have to deal with it again. Really, it is something that is an ongoing process. We're always putting to death the deeds of the flesh. Another Puritan named Christian Love, in his book, The Mortified Believer, remarks that God reserves the utter abolition of sin for the state of glorification, not of mortification. Uh, In other words, mortification, putting these things to death, is the daily battle we must engage in every day to subdue the flesh and weaken it. Paul writes in Ephesians 4.22 that we are to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. Put off that old self, he says. In other words, we must get down to business mortifying the flesh, putting off those things, getting rid of them, not engaging with them, distancing ourselves from them. But how do we actually do this? How do we actually do this? How do we mortify the flesh? Well, I think there's a lot that could be written. Again, there's many books written by men who are much wiser and godlier than I am. Uh, that I would uh, encourage you to read. Um, but here are five, five hopefully helpful practical tips for mortifying the flesh. First, daily remember what Christ has done for you in dying for your sins. Remember that. Consider the weight of that, the cost of your sin, the cost of engaging in those deeds of the flesh, how wicked it is to God that he would have to send his own beloved son to deal with sins. That's how great our sin is. That's how wicked it is. And as a result, we must remember, right, as Christians, we are now dead to sin and alive to God. We must consider ourselves that way, Paul says. So these gospel truths form the foundation for our battle with the flesh, the weight of sin, the grace of God in Christ. Second, by God's help, deal with the very first seeds of temptation. Deal with them right away. When that tickle of temptation starts in the back of your mind or in your, your body, deal with it then. Don't ignore it. Don't let it hang out. Uh, Don't let it build a nest, right? But kill it immediately. Kill it immediately with uh, the, the truth of Scripture and with prayer for God's help right away. Right away. Don't let that seed sprout. Maybe this looks like memorizing specific passages for the temptations you might struggle with. But be prepared and be quick to deal with sin and temptation. Number three, Mortifying the flesh, don't put yourself in situations that you know you're tempted by. Right? If alcohol is a struggle for you and you know that when you go to the bar you're going to drink, don't go to the bar. Don't go to the bar, right? It's easier said than done sometimes. Right? Maybe you struggle with lust. If you know that lust is a problem for you, maybe there are some movies that you shouldn't watch, that you should abstain from. Don't put yourself in situations you're going to be tempted by. Right? If you put yourself in a situation that you're consistently sinning in, that you're consistently tempted by, that is what the Bible calls foolishness. That's foolishness, right? When you're feeling tempted, get out of there. Flee. Don't have anything to do with that. Go for a walk. Go outside. Go do something else. And number four, mortifying the flesh, we need to continually repent. Martin Luther wisely said the whole life of the Christian is one of repentance. When you sin, 
If you do give in to temptation, confess it to God specifically for what it is, right? We don't want to be the people who say, yeah, well, Lord, I sinned. Please forgive me. Amen. Or Lord, I really blew it this time. Please help me. Amen. Name your sin for what it is. Lord, I committed this sin. I did this specific thing, and I sinned against you, and this has had this effect. Lord, please forgive me. Help me to change. Thank you for the work of Jesus. But our repentance must be specific and genuine and constant and quick. Number five, John Owen helpfully reminds us mortification can't just be directed at one area of sin. It's not just one area of sin, right? If you struggle with anger, yeah, deal with that. But don't just assume your work is done, right? Our, our, our dealings with the flesh should be universal. Universal obedience is what we're aiming for. The mortification, in other words, right? If we summarize it down, it is starving and subduing the flesh by the power of the Spirit by attacking it with God's truth, prayer, and practical means. So we're called to mortify the flesh, put to death the deeds of the flesh. That's one side of the coin. On the other side of the coin, we are called to vivify the new self. Again, it's an old Puritan word. I have a soft spot for old Puritan words. But it's a good one, right? It's a good one. Vivify the new self. It means to make more alive, to give more strength to, to enliven. We read from Rome, uh, Ephesians 4.22 to put off the old self. But in the very next verse, listen to what Paul tells us to do. He says, after put off your old self, he says, but... Be renewed in the spirit of your minds. Put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. We are called to put on the new self, to vivify the new self. So in the negative, we put off the old self. We mortify the flesh. And in the positive, we vivify the soul by the spirit's power. And we put on the new self. As our old self is weakened and our new self strengthened, we walk in more obedience to God. That's, that's how it works. So how do we vivify the new self? Well, again, we have to remember it is the Holy Spirit, first and foremost, who is the author of vivification. He alone has the power and the ability to do this work in us, to strengthen our inner man. So first, again, we need to walk by the Spirit. We can't say that enough. We need to live dependently upon the Lord. But at the same time, we need to recognize biblically there are things the Spirit uses in the process of vivification. There are things the Spirit uses that if we neglect, we will experience no growth in grace. Uh, one, well, I guess this is number two on my little list here. So first, we walk by the Spirit. Second, what are the things the Spirit uses? Well, participate in the public worship of the church. Part of God's design for your spiritual growth is for you to be in a community of believers, hearing the word preached, singing praise to God, praying with God's people, partaking of the Lord's Supper, encouraging one another, praying for each other, having holy conversation with each other. Right? These are what we call the ordinary means of grace. And there's nothing flashy about them. What we're doing here this morning, there's no production value here. We're not doing anything fancy. We've sung some simple songs. We've had some simple prayers. We're having a simple sermon. We're going to have a simple benediction. And yet these simple, ordinary things are what God uses by his Spirit's power in the life of the believer to help bring renewal to our mind. That's a wonderful thing. And there is an aspect of that that only occurs in the assembled church. Right? Lone wolf Christians are not healthy Christians. Number three, consider what you're consuming. Right? Are you consuming worldly things that feed your flesh or are you consuming Scripture? Are you consuming good Christian books that turn your attention to Christ? Are you hearing helpful sermons from sound teachers? Right? We talked about what we do together, but here's what we do privately. It doesn't mean every minute of the day has to be spent in explicitly Christian activity, but it does mean that you know, what you watch, what you listen to, what you read will either be used to strengthen your new self or your old self. It's going to have benefit for your flesh or for your soul. Are you spending time in God's creation? Right? Something as simple as that can be uh, something that leads us to worship, that refreshes us greatly and strengthens our inner man. Number four, spend time communing with God in prayer. This includes asking for his help, of course, but spend time in prayer meditating on his goodness, his kindness, his holiness, his attributes. Now, the more you spend focusing on him, the more your love for him grows, the less appealing the desires of the flesh will be as the new self is strengthened. Right? 
We need to focus on our Lord and remind ourselves of his goodness so that counterfeit goodness does not appeal to us anymore. So brothers and sisters, our, our flesh is a constant enemy, a constant one. It is the enemy within. It's constantly with us. It's eager to make war on our souls. And we need to be vigilant. We need to be sober-minded about the reality of our sinful nature. But we don't need to be hopeless about it. Right? By God's grace, he has equipped us for the fight by giving us his spirit itself, by giving us his grace in salvation, by giving us his word that tells us what is true and what is good. And by pursuing these things, by following his commands in our battle with the flesh, we can have increasing victory over its power and live lives that are more honoring to our Lord. And I pray that that is what we truly desire at the end of the day. Let us pray. Our Lord and our God, we are weak and frail. We are sinful and foolish. Lord, you did not create us with this sinful nature, but Lord, because of man's sin, because of the fall of Adam, we carry it around with us. Lord, we thank you that your word is not silent on this topic, that you've given us abundant instruction, that you've given us your very spirit. And Lord, so much more could be said about this today. But we thank you that we have your word with us, that we can turn to it any time, that we have your son as our high priest who we can go to with confidence at any time, that we have your spirit dwelling within us, who is ready and able to make war on the flesh at any time. So Lord, help us walk in the Spirit to take advantage of the ordinary means of grace, to spend time communing with you in prayer, reading your word, not so that we just grow in our knowledge of Bible facts, but Lord, so that we take in more of your living word, that your Spirit might use it to sanctify us, and that we might use it to fight against the temptations of the flesh. We thank you for your great promise, Lord, that this, uh, this battle that we fight now is not an unending one, but that there will be a, a full and final end to it. Help us to keep our eyes fixed on the blessed hope, the return of our Lord, and uh, Lord, to live in light of that. We ask for your help in all of these things and give you glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, benediction for you as you go. 2 Corinthians 13, 14, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. You are loved. Have a good Lord's Day.